Mecham Auctions, the world's largest collector car auction company, returns to Indy with Dana Mecham's 37th Original Spring Classic, May 10th through the 18th at the Indiana State Fairground. 3,000 muscle cars, Corvettes, exotics, and more. Broadcast on Motor Trend TV and streaming live on Max. From avid collectors to those new to the Mecham experience, we welcome everyone. Register to bid now at Mecham.com. Hotline, the morning shows, Kevin and Query, weekday mornings, 7 until 10 a.m. It is Kevin Bowen with us. So are you screaming and yelling about this play to go to Foles now, or are you like me where you say it just doesn't matter? Yeah, I, I, um, I've been a fan of Benjamin Matt Ryan for several weeks now. Um, I think, honestly, the financial component's the biggest thing. You know, when you look at continuing to play Ryan, running the risk of owing him, an additional $17 million for next year. $17 million is a whole lot of money. Uh, I know Chris Ballard isn't one to spend a whole lot in free agency, but if that shifts, if that changes, if there's a mandate from the owner to shift that approach, if there's a new GM, uh, you can do a whole lot of damage with $17 million. And so the fact that you continue to run Matt Ryan out there and run the risk of him getting hurt and having to owe him that on top of the $12 million you already owe him for next year, uh, I just thought there was no reason to play him. I'd rather see Ellinger just because I don't think Nick Foles is a part, you know, long-term clearly of what you want to do. Uh, but if nothing else, I, you know, and again, I don't think this greatly shifts like, oh, the Colts have gone from a, whatever, a 25% chance to win one of their last three games, and now they have Nick Foles at quarterback, so now it's 70%, you know, something like that. I, I don't think there's some great jump. But I do think you should just look like a little bit more of a functional offense. I mean, you you didn't look like that at all with Ryan. So if that allows for better evaluations of some of your young guys, then I think that's a benefit. Um, again, when you're four nine and one, it's probably not worth like making a whole lot of noise about it. But I do think there are some benefits to mostly benching Ryan more than anything. Um, again, I would have opted for Ellinger, but if you're just looking to get a little bit of a better gauge of what you're doing on offense, you know, maybe Nick Foles will help you out there for a couple games. Kev, does this dictate, and my thought is that I've seen enough of Ellinger. Um, my thought is that clearly they've now seen enough, but is there a component maybe at work here is you bring Ellinger back and let's say he has, has some success and you got to screw around with that at all for next year. Is that a component here at all? Like if you would have gone to Ellinger and he yeah, and all of a sudden he yeah. he like you know has a level of success unseen by any quarterback so far this season here down the stretch in the final three. Is that a component at work here at all, or is that just crap? Yeah, I haven't really given that too much thought. I, I guess my initial, my initial reaction would be just too small of a I, I think it's too small of a sample size. Um, and again, I, I don't think Ellinger would have that success to necessarily make you pause. I mean, I know the owner likes him, but again, I don't think like him enough to all of a sudden reshape or reshift whatever 2023 quarterback plans you would have. Um, I kind of view it more of, again, do you get a better idea of is Ellinger a definite backup for you moving forward? I mean, Foles, for what it's worth, he's got another year under contract here. Now, Nick Foles signed a two-year deal here for very specific reasons. Yeah, One, to be with Frank Reich again two to be Matt Ryan's backup. So both of those are now gone. Um, so I, I get that he's under contract, but he's probably earned the right slash 
I don't think the Colts are in that dire of a situation where they need to like hold Nick Foles' feet to the fire and demand that he stays here next year. Um, so I probably look at it a little bit more of like, again, can Ellinger be your backup? Um, you know, it, it, in kind of the makeup of the quarterback room, and you know, it's December 21st, so we'll see if my mind changes. But right now, I kind of look at next year as you draft the quarterback in round one. Sam Ellinger, of course, is in your quarterback room. And then I would think some sort of veteran would be in there. Well, Not Matt Ryan. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's why. That's why I think. I think that's part of this too. That was the component I was going to talk about. Was get another year from Foles, and he's going to be, you know, the backup or the veteran when they go out and draft Will you Levis. Think he wants that though. Um, I I don't know if he would mind it, right? If you're getting paid to play when maybe you don't have an opportunity anyplace else in the NFL, correct? Yeah, and I guess that would be a question. You know, how does the NFL view him? Um, again, I don't think he comes here. If Frank Reich is not not the coach. Um, you know, dating back to last off season. Um, again, as you pointed out, you know, who knows what? You know, oh, Nick Foles is very sought after. I don't think we're there anymore with them, but I still think he would be attractive to some other spots. You know, trying to groom a young quarterback. Maybe he has other coaching connections elsewhere. Uh, to your point, I mean, he did think he was going to be here for two years. He moved his family here. Um, I mean, there were definitely, you know, reasons why he he chose here and believed it would be definitely a two-year run. So maybe the family aspect and not wanting to move his family again for a guy that's moved a whole lot over the last few years, uh, maybe that would play into it. Um, but I think it's more just – I think it's Jeff Saturday finally realizing that like Matt Ryan was a turnover machine, but it's not even like he was making big plays with those turnovers. Um, you know, it, it's not like this is a dude that was throwing for 350 and three touchdowns and then also had two picks every game. You know, he obviously wasn't sniffing the big plays from a passing game standpoint, finishing off drives and those things. So I think when you factor that in, Saturday looked at it and said, um, I'm done with Ryan, and I just don't think Jeff is very much a believer in wanting to go youth. I think he's a guy that kind of sides with the veteran leadership, and obviously Foles has a ton of experience in this league, and that's why he's going that that, that path. Because he knows what his resume looks like right now, and it's it, it's ugly from a win loss standpoint. And he wants to get this job, and so I think he views it as can I spark something here in the final few games to uh, possibly have this permanently. So, Kevin Bowen, the morning show on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Potline. I want to double back to this with a question for you coming up in just a second. But how hard do you expect Jim Mersey to go out after Jim Harbaugh? Um, I think he would be on a list, certainly. Um, you know, I, I, I think you'd have to make quite the recruiting pitch, though, for Jim Harbaugh. Uh, probably, honestly, the first thing you would want is for Michigan to win the national title here coming up. Yeah, that's no doubt. In the next that's couple weeks. yes, correct. Uh, you, you would want that to happen, so he has, you know, checked, you know, the most important box and and why he took that job. Um, but again, you're going to have to financially certainly make an aggressive pitch. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think Harbaugh is making just slightly less at Michigan what reportedly Frank Wright was making with the Colts, and I think I, the numbers, if I have them right. Reich was at nine million annually, and Harbaugh's like a little bit north of seven. Um, and then it's not something he had in San Francisco, but you know the college game he obviously has it. You know, does Harbaugh want any roster control? I mean, that is a huge, huge element to 
Um, I think pursuing some of the most sought after candidates, if that's what they want and that's what they feel like they deserve. I mean, I don't think it's going to be a coaching cycle where there's tons and tons of openings. Um, so you can look at that a couple of ways. You know, the might be scarce for some people, uh, but without a ton of openings, guys might be a little bit more selective in their process. Like, I don't think it's a must that Sean Payton needs to coach next year in the NFL. Um, I don't think it's a must that Jim Harbaugh needs to coach next year in the NFL. I mean, Doug Peterson took a year off, and look how that worked out for him. So, um I think that's something that you're going to have to make a pretty strong pitch to Harbaugh. Um, and then also, you know, how does he view the quarterback situation and where's that draft pick? You know, I, I think that is an important element to um, you know, showing that next head coach, hey, we have something here that can help you get the next QB because um, you don't have that answer for whoever you are pitching for that head head coaching job. But, hey, I guess back to the original question, I, I, I do think Jim Irsay – um, would would covet Harbaugh. I just think that there are like two great unifiers of every of everybody, uh, with the first things first in belief in decision making, and one is Harbaugh and the other is Peyton. Now, clearly, I don't think either one will end up here, but I do believe, at least on the surface, that there are two great unifiers of that, and it would be those two names. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I probably side with you in saying, I mean, obviously Peyton is not going to be here. Um, and I would, you know, be a bit surprised, honestly, if Harbaugh took the job here. Um, you yeah, know, it I won't happen. Curious. It's not going to happen. Yeah, I, I am curious just, you know, how much does this job have any stain on it and how it's viewed around the NFL? Um, you know, from, again, the fact that, you look at how the organization's operated over the last 12 months and the owner has made, you know, all of the important moves from coach to quarterback on several occasions. Um, does that influence anybody at all? Uh, you know, D'Amico Ryan is a name that I really like, 49ers defensive coordinator. He pulled his name out of the Minnesota job late last year. I think that had more to do with the 49ers making a playoff run. But, you know, is that something where, again, these guys that feel like they have pretty good resumes feel like they're coveted or will be coveted for multiple jobs, maybe multiple jobs across several years. They're not necessarily going to going to panic and say, Oh, I've got to take this job at all costs. Um, you know, and maybe some first time head coaches will feel that, uh, but some others that have a resume like a Harbaugh, like a Peyton, uh, they would feel like they need to be a little bit more or can be a little bit more patient with it. So, Again, I am curious when you don't have that obvious quarterback answer or the obvious quarterback resource in, let's say, Houston, having the number one overall pick, uh, that would create a little bit of pause for concern. And then I think second on that list, if I were a coaching candidate and I were interviewing the Colts, it would be, all right, explain to me whose voices are where and how this is going to operate because I think league-wide – there is a little bit of a, man, have you seen what the hell's going on in Indianapolis this year? And I think that is something that will be brought up in the interview process. I just think this. I, I think with the name, that's why I said a great unifier. With somebody like Harbaugh, I think that hiring is made, and then Jim Irsay steps away into the background. And as a voice, is very vocal, as the owners are in the NFL, is playing music and doing his philanthropy and things like that. That's when I think that he has uh, the confidence then where he, he steps back. It's not going to happen, but that's why I also call that, you know, a great unifier of all. And 
regarding Chris Ballard, I know my viewpoint, but I'm curious of yours. Is the belief that Jim Irsay has in Ballard right now more for what he has done with his football team and his franchise or more not wanting to pay somebody else while he's paying Chris to do it? Yeah, I, I do think the financial component is an element, but I would say it's honestly more ego and not wanting to pay four people to do two jobs over the next, you know, I guess four years. And by that, I mean, you're paying Frank Reich for four more years. Obviously you're going to pay a new head coach. Um, so there's two people you're paying to do one job. And then at GM, if you were to fire Ballard, you would be paying him for the next four years and you would have to pay a new GM. Uh, that's very rare for Ursay, uh, unprecedented really in his history to be paying, you know, two outgoing two people you fired at head coach and GM. And then also obviously paying the two people you would have in house with that. So the finances of that would be huge. I mean, North of a hundred million, frankly, but more than anything, it's just, I, I think it's a little bit more of an, of an ego thing for him. Uh, I know you and I have had this conversation before, John, but I think part of it was his decision-making to not fire Chuck Pagano in the same cycle he did Ryan Grigson. You know, he, he, he kind of wanted to hold on to that. Hey, I, I don't want to look like both of these moves were wrong. I want to hold on to one of them when Chris Bowden really wanted no part of Chuck Pagano being a head coach in 2017. It was just kind of a waste. Uh, to have that 2017 season with a lame duck head coach and a new general manager. And obviously that lasted for one year. And then you saw the move that was made on that front. So uh, I do believe that Jim Mersey has always thought, you know, very highly of Chris Ballard has still thought, you know, highly of him. I thought what could push Chris out the door is just continued embarrassment. Uh, and you've had that um, the last couple of weeks. You certainly have had that. Uh, on national television, but even saying that, um, I still feel like there's a chance and probably a decent chance that Ballard is back next year. Uh, Obviously, it's Jim Irsay, so predicting exactly what he's going to do is probably not the smartest thing, but um, unless there's more embarrassment to follow here in the final three weeks, I I can see Irsay bringing him back. Now, as we've talked about throughout this, again, who's got the voice, who's got the decision-making you know, ultimate say, I think that's a big factor in deciding how many cooks are in that kitchen. And I don't think that's a very smooth process on paper right now. So you've got to decide that. Um, and then secondly, I, I, I would also kind of look at, and I don't know if Ursay views it in this light, but Jeff Saturday very often, you know, in recent weeks, when he's asked about, you know, his handling of this football team and the quarterback position and the offense, He's thrown in there like, guys, I knew this was bad. I mean, Jim doesn't bring me in here if things were good. And in eight weeks, what are you going to change? And, you know, part of, you know, you can kind of look at it like that, but you could also look at it and say, well, what's Steve Wilkes done in Carolina to where he's an interim head coach? And, yes, he's been at the job a little bit longer than obviously Jeff has, uh, but they are – if they win out, I'm pretty sure they win their division. Uh, the Colts are not in that sort of position. But secondly, the fact that Saturday keeps on saying this, and I'm not saying that he's wrong. What does that say about the roster that he inherited and the fact that there is no quick fix and that this team continues to have a really poor record and continues to put up embarrassing performances, honestly probably a little bit more embarrassing than they had earlier in the season? 
if you're Jim Irsay, do you listen to all of Jeff Saturday and kind of read in between the lines and say, oh, boy, that doesn't sound very good about what he inherited from a roster standpoint. And, and I think less to do with maybe the culture, quote, unquote, that Frank Reich left him. So Kevin Bowen, the morning show on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I, I, this is kind of what I believe. I believe that more than a future possibility of coach, as we have talked about before, Jeff Saturday is an informational guy. And you brought up 2017 and what led to the ouster of general manager Ryan Grigson and one more season of Chuck Pagano. We both know this because you were over there at the time. That was a consulting firm that they brought in to check over that, to see what was going on. And, you know, they, to their ability, found that in their minds, uh, the problem was was Ryan Grigson and ultimately Jim Irsay eliminated that problem. So it kind of makes you wonder if Jeff Saturday is kind of a bit of an offshoot of that consulting firm if he's being used by Jim Irsay to gather this information to find out what is going on within the organization. And at the end of the year, you find out that the problem is the the moves, the personnel, the blueprint of the general manager. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, when Saturday was hired, you know, I thought to myself kind of part consultant, part interim head coach that wants to be the full-time head coach the more this unfolded I, I i really think jeff saturday wants to be here permanently like i mean he wants this job um and i think jim ursay wants that to happen um it, it, i i think there comes a point in time where you've got to you know put your emotions to the side after the season and sit down and go through that entire head coaching process and, and really see what the candidate list looks like out there besides jeff saturday but um, I think those parties want that marriage to happen. I mean, I asked Jeff last week, you know, do you want this full time? And he was passionate in saying that he, he does and that what has transpired over the last month has only, I think, you know, created more passion in him to do this. And he's got a vision for what it looks like and all of that. So, yeah, there is an element of he's a very trusted guy for Jim Mercer that can be a, a bit of a consultant. but. At the same time, this is not from some independent third party that you've got no prior ties to. Uh, this is a guy that wants this job permanently. And Jim Mercer, I think deep down, would love for that Hollywood story to play out. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a path that the organization should be taking. But I do think that's how both of those parties uh, view it. Well, then he must be privy to he's going to have a gig regardless. Because with what you talked about earlier, getting into this, taking over when he did, knowing how bad this was, and you know, obviously understanding that it wasn't going to get any better, you don't take that gig to look like this right now unless you have some security about where you're going within this organization or just not going to be a part of it outright, do you? Because I mean he does he's not he's not covered in glory by any stretch here. And it may not be completely his fault, but anybody that was going to take over was going to find this same situation. And it was losing and it was embarrassing. And that's where they are right now. And if you're going to pull people out there, Kev, people are going to say, There's no way in the world Jeff Saturday can be the head coach next year. So he's had to have some sort of if if you're right about this, some sort of security that he is indeed going to be around in some capacity next year. Yeah. And that's why I think like you have to weigh the results at some level. I mean, again, I can acknowledge that Jeff Saturday was thrown into a bad situation, but every interim coach is thrown into some level of a bad situation. 
Because, like, how else do you really gauge and properly look at what he's done here? Because if you watch Jeff Saturday in a press conference, if you watch Jeff Saturday in a team speech, if you watch him, I mean, hell, Jake had him send a little pump-up video to the North Central seniors, I believe it was, for their senior day, or maybe it was their last game of the year. Like, you're going to fall in love with Jeff Saturday in front of a camera, in front of people, as a speaker, as a leader, all those things. Do the results matter at all? Because, again, if you watch him in those settings, you're going to fall in love. So at some point, you've got to separate yourself from that and look at how the team has performed under him. And they've gotten off the better starts. There's no question about that. Um, Yeah, I think the offensive line play has improved a bit. Granted, the bar was incredibly low, but they continued to lose. They continue to be an awful offensive product. They continue to have an inability to finish games at a historic rate. And again, they've been thoroughly embarrassed in historic fashion each of the last two weeks to end games on national television. And the Jimmer said that I know that would really, really piss him off. Um, does he have a little bit of blurred vision with that? Because it's just Saturday and he has such an emotional tie to him and really wants to get back into that era. I think that's a fair question to ask, but yeah, I, I, I just think that is a big, big part of it. Of again, you can watch Saturday behind the scenes. You can watch him, you know, talk to players and talk to you and talk to the team and this and that. And you're going to come away thoroughly impressed and feeling a connection and wanting to like that guy. But at the end of the day, I think you have to weigh the results on field at some level. And right now, I, I don't see how what you've seen in these five games gives you any sort of reason to say, yep, that is our guy for the next five years. Well, I brought this up, and I don't think the results matter because you can say the same damn thing about going into year seven with Chris Ballard. In fact, you have to. Where do those results matter? So I would suggest if those results don't matter to where we are now and where we're likely going into next year, and then when you draft a quarterback where likely you're going into the year after that, then these results probably don't matter too much. Yeah, and again, this is probably going to sound like I'm carrying Ballard's water, and I'm not. Yeah, He's certainly had better results than Jeff Saturday has had here as the interim head coach. Um, I I would agree you're now heading into – you know, year seven and his biggest core belief, arguably his two biggest core beliefs, you have major question marks about in the offensive line play and then the defensive line. I feel like your young guys have shown you a little bit, but still um, not to the level that you would want. Um, And obviously from a division title standpoint, you continue to miss out on that and it's sitting there on a golden platter for you down the stretch. And yet you're in no position to seriously threaten. So, um, I certainly get where you're coming from on that. Um, and, again, I think it's a very emotionally charged owner that's made some decisions here over the last few months and, and, and year. And if that creeps in with Jeff Saturday, then he is going to run it back with with Jeff. But um, I do think they will go through an entire process. Um, I'm very curious if Chris Ballard will have any say in that process because I, if I think Jim Irsay listens to Ballard, I would think Ballard would be much more open-minded to, again, having a, a long, long coaching process, looking at a ton of candidates from a various amount of backgrounds. And in the end, it probably not being Jeff Saturday. Um, obviously, Jim Mercy is going to have the final say in that, but how much will he actually trust Chris Ballard 
in the role that he hired him to be and with the praise of the greatest GM hire of the 21st century. Uh, Ursay said that six years ago. Um, but having said that, that voice has been pretty muted inside of his organization with some huge decisions over the last year. Uh, his foundation has failed here. There's no other way to get around it, and it's even more magnified with what you just brought up. It is of which that platter is out there with this division title, the first since 2014, and uh, the Colts are harmless to make any sort of run at it because of where yeah. they are and because – for the most part of that foundation, again, that's failed. So I don't know. I don't know what else you have to do. I'm, listen, I'm not. I don't have an agenda against the guy, but I just don't know how you see. You don't see this, I guess. So. Right, and I just don't understand how Jim Mercy doesn't view that in a little bit more of a critical light. In that, you know, when you were up there a month and a half ago, and I'm talking Ursay and Ballard and Jeff Saturday for that press conference. I mean, we were largely in that building late Monday night you know, back in mid-November because Ballard's most important position he believes in failed in the offensive line. Um, And, you know, Ursay was so public all offseason long about this division and this division. And, you know, I said it to you, John, entering the year. I I don't think the AFC South had ever been there more for the taking. And it's unfolded in that way. Um, You know, Tennessee obviously got off to a really nice start, but eventually I just think the trade of A.J. Brown and the injuries have caught up to them, uh, big injuries, um, and again, some of these were preseason injuries that they had. Um, I felt like <laughs> if you could get to nine, you were going to win the division. Hell, eight might even win the division, depending how you know Jacksonville and Tennessee play out these final three games. You know, if you look back on Ursay's offseason comments, if you were to tell him all of that, that that should be a very fired up, pissed off owner. Uh, now, obviously, he's fired Frank Reich, but how much of that is a reflection on Chris Ballard as well? Um, I think there should be a lot. You know, I, I mentioned this, you know, in, in regards to the lack of finishing here in recent weeks. When you think about that area, to me, quarterback, wide out, defensive end, those three positions I think impact finishing, closing out games more than any other on the, on, on the football field. You know, quarterback and wide out, how many times do you see Patrick Mahomes find, you know, a you know, Tyreek Hill back in the day, but find, you know, one of his pass catchers on a third down to extend a drive, be able to run out the clock and vice versa. How many times did we, you know, watch for a decade, you know, number 93, number 98, close the door uh, when, you know, Peyton and that, and those Colts teams got them a lead. And you look at those three positions, quarterback, wide out, defensive end, Colts just don't have impactful at those spots at all. And I think that is a huge reflection on their inability this, this season to close out games. So that would be another thing that if you're Jim Mercer and you look at Chris Bauer, you would say, uh, you know, why haven't these been more of a priority? Um, because your priorities aren't working out either in offensive and defensive line, and yet the roster construction belief that you've had doesn't really follow what 2022 NFL is all about. Yeah, well, you're constantly being outmaneuvered by those around you within your own division. And uh, that's that's problematic here. And now I, I got to run here, but uh, we'll have plenty of time for this. This is probably more of a after the season conversation. But uh, yeah, what the hell? We had a little bit early. So Merry Christmas to everybody, I guess, out there <laughs> right now with that. All right. Tomorrow morning, 7 until 10 a.m. It is Kevin and Query here on the Fan Morning Show. Are you going to be down there tomorrow at the uh, party where we're doing our thing? Yeah, too? Yeah, I'm going to try and uh, hop down there. We'll throw in a little bit of a plug. we got Ryan Walters, Purdue head coach, joining us tomorrow okay, cool. at 9. So uh, looking forward to that conversation. And 
glad you're feeling a little bit better and uh, i will see you tomorrow but uh you got bring your mom too i'm gonna get your mom drunk like we did that last time <laughs> yeah, as long as you got some white wine with a lot of ice, uh, she will be happy to, uh, to throw them back. I am Mr. Alcohol. I have what she needs right there. Always, <laughs> always available. All right, buddy. I'll see you tomorrow. Hi, right, John. See Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Joining us in studio right now, and I could not be more thankful for this human being than I am. His book is called Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down, The Ups and Downs and the Reinvention of an Entrepreneur. Jeff Smolian of Emmis is in studio with me again. I cannot thank you enough for what you have provided me over the years and then going all the way back to the late 1980s, the genre that I am have been able to have a career as a part of. That is all thanks to you, and I could not be more appreciative. Jay, uh, it, you, uh, you, it is well-deserved. You've done great work. I am proud of you. Um, and uh, this is I'm just thrilled for your career. Really am. Oh, I love it. And it, it continues to move forward, and we're you know doing a lot of things and having a lot of fun. You, you allow me to do what has, much like you, Jeff, fascinated me since an early age. Yeah. And that is yeah. that is radio. And the best part is that when I see you in the elevator, I find out what's really going on <laughs> exactly. with the Colts and Pacers. I could I could find out the uh, real story. That is that is you can't talk about on the air. That is all some of that <laughs> stuff we just save for the elevator here. There's there's no doubt about that. I uh, so what was the motivation with the book here, Jeff? Well, the motivation, remember the infamous my daughter who I'm now trying to get home. I I just heard that. Yes. Yep. Uh, stuck in an airport. Um, I would drive her to school every day from the time she was kinder, in kindergarten until she fired me when she got her driver's license <laughs> and we just talk about life and sure. it was my favorite 30 minutes a day and we just talk about lessons i've learned and stories and one day she said dad nobody would ever believe these stories you got to write a book and then covid came about and i was bored and things were slow and i started writing and the next thing i knew i had 300 pages and i sent it off to a couple friends and they said you got a book here so i got a wonderful editor who tightened stuff up and sure said, this is extraneous or add to this and then we got an agent and we got a publisher and the book came out uh, in the last 10 days it's been a lot of fun uh, Jeff Spolian's in studio with us. We'll get to the title of the book and how you can get that coming up in a minute. Uh, is radio still the most interesting aspect of of all those pages and all your experiences in this book? Yeah, radio was always my first love, Jay. I, Me too. I, I listen to it. I'm of a generation. I think my socks are older than you, so I'm a lot older. Um, <laughs> but um, I would. I was one of the generation of the kids who would listen to a transistor radio <laughs> under their pillow at night, listen to ball games and top forty radio. Right. Um, um, and I always loved it. Always knew what I wanted to do. I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I always say I'm an entrepreneur because I'm not hireable in a free society. Um, nobody would really hire me. But uh, I always wanted to do this and started the company 40-some years ago and uh, and loved it. Radio was always the most fun, the most creative. Um, it got to be challenging. All of it got to be challenging. And uh, But I always loved it. When, um, when did you really see it take off? Because you said you, you obviously own stations going back yeah. 40 years 
years, but where yeah. did you really see radio muscle up and, and you knew that you were in the right business? Well, I knew before that because it, radio was pronounced dead when television came about in the 50s. And then with the invention of Top 40 Radio, it had a renaissance. I, I listened to WIFE here, which every kid did. When I went to Los Angeles and went to USC, I listened to KHJ. Um, and you just saw that it was an integral part of everybody's lives. And when we started, our thesis of the company was that music is probably going to work on FM and it will replace music on AM. And our first station, which was 97.1, which was then WENS, um, became a hit overnight. And then we went to Minneapolis. We had a hit overnight there. And then we had St. Louis and Los Angeles. And it seemed like everything we did, we always said, we'll let the audience tell us what to do. We're not going to tell the audience what we're going to do. And we always found niches and uh, and it just worked over and over again. Do you have a favorite string of years in well, radio? The, you know, I mean, I always say every year has been good. Um, the 80s is when the company took off and it was so much fun. And radio meant more to people then because it wasn't such a fragmented world. Yeah. I, uh, I always think about this um, because we were now, as you mentioned, in a fragmented world yeah. where there's you know social media and yeah. digital and all that. So many different avenues in which um, people can go to outside of just what we do. How, how do we make this even more special? The spoken word is different yeah. than music. There's yeah. no doubt about that. No so we're, we're fortunate in that category doing what we're doing right here. Yes. But how, how does it maintain? It maintains doing what you do every day. You relate to your audience. When you when you care about your audience and your audience cares about you, that's a viable business. The problem with music is is that and, and this is one of my complaints about the industry, is the industry started had too much debt, consolidation led to some massive ridiculous prices. Uh, and to pay those things, people got a lot of debt. And when industry growth levels dropped, they said, Okay, well, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna cut our cost and we're gonna cut people and we're going to add commercials and yeah. the problem with that is both of those things drive people away um, you know there are companies that you know don't have any people on the air locally and I think the future of this business has always been local yes. and compelling yes, yes. that's yeah. it and I think that once upon a time a, a uh, different uh, communication company came up with a strategy called less is more yeah if you remember that well they and, they, and, and that and, was beyond lame yeah, so, yeah. well they, they yeah and it just the problem is and I live this. We got into TV because we said the radio average station price of radio station was like 10 times cash sure. flow, 10 times profit for people. Who, you know. And then in, in three or four years, it went to like 20 times, went to 12 and then 15 and then 20 and then 25. Well, 25 times you know, cash flow, you, you can never make that work unless the industry goes by 10 or 12 percent a year. And it was never going to do that. So people had too much debt. Um, and then what do they do? They had to cut costs and they added commercials and uh, it just made it a mess. Jeff Smalling's in studio from MS. Never ride a roller coaster upside down. The ups and downs and in reinvention of an entrepreneur is the book we want you to go out and get because it is fantastic. I want you to describe to the listing audience how those around you felt when back in the late 80s you said, I want to start a sports talk radio station when uh, there were none. One of my favorite stories. I have, a, I have two chapters in the book. I have a favorite saying, John, is 
the the line between being a genius and an idiot is very fine and i've been on both sides so one chapter is idiot to genius um i had the idea to do all sports radio when i was not paying attention in a class at usc which was a pretty common assurance sure. for me and it was sort of in the back of my mind and when we bought the double day stations we had an fm in new york and an fm in washington we had an am and i was sitting with my friend steve crane and what are we going to do with the AM? And I said, well, I've always wanted to do all sports. Um, and we talked about it at a manager's meeting. Um, and everybody said, this is an epically stupid idea. Um, and Emma's a very collaborative group. And we voted on it. And it lost. And Steve, I'll never forget Steve Crane, who was my boyhood friend, came with me at Emma's in the very beginning. Walked out of the meeting. He said, what do you want to do? I said, you can't lead where others won't follow. So we're not going to do it. And the next day, Rick Cummings, who, had yep. been, who was then head of programming. Did he vote you down there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, we just have to. Yeah. Come on. He was then head of programming. He was head of programming three minutes ago. I think he still is. <laughs> we've been we've been together since day one. Right. He and Doyle Rose, who was then running the radio group, walked into my office and said, look, we're doing really well and we owe you one. So even though we still think this is a really stupid idea, let's do it. Um and, I, and they said, we, we don't really want to be involved in it, but we'll hire people to be involved in it, but it's stupid. And it was known uh, for the first year, year and a half, as Smolian's Folly. Uh, Jim Lampley called it the Vietnam War of Emmis. Uh, I, I have a dear, dear friend. In- <laughs> he, 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 uh, he went a little bit over the top in describing things often, so that's surprising, but, yeah. But um, I had my, my dear friend John Dilley, he was from South Bend and Elkhart and was in New York one day, and he said, I used to think you're a really smart guy then. I I heard that thing, and you're really not very smart. Um, but it was not successful, um, and there was a lot of needling. This is a company where everybody teases everybody else, and you know, at the end of the day, somebody would say, "Well, it's five o'clock. We lost nine thousand three hundred twenty-one dollars <laughs> at Fan today. Nice job." And then you know, we merged it with the NBC stations. We put Don Imus on. We put Mike and the Mad Dog on, um, and it took off. And and we made it more local New York, which you really need to do. The, the, the future of this business, if you're going to be in sports talk, is you're going to be talking about the Colts. You're going to be talking about the Pacers. Yeah. You, you, it's like it's like radio. You play the hits. And in New York, it was New York sports. And it took off. And then I went from idiot to genius, um, which I was very proud of. And then the next thing we did is bought a Major League Baseball team in Seattle, which allowed me to go from the boy wonder and the genius uh, to after about three years to being an idiot. So I've seen all sides of that. Yeah, uh, Jeff Smalling's in studio talking about his new book. Imus, I think the only thing we really know about Imus yeah. was the level in which he reached, how he was portrayed yeah. in the film by Howard Stern, and yeah. then you know the, yeah. the shortcomings, yeah. uh, those moments on radio for him. But how was he, he was to br- work with? He was brilliant. He was uh, a curmudgeon, which is the word I could use on mm-hmm. the air. I won't use the other word. You sure? Be. I get along very well with Don. I, I will never forget when we were when we were merging with NBC and it was 19 actually 87 and he had an agent named Mike Lynn and Mike and I had known each other because he represented Robert W. Morgan so I knew him and we were sitting in his office and we said well let's see if we put Imus on the air here let's see what we have we have a radio station which is losing record amounts of money we carry the Mets who now have what appears to be record amounts of drug use and we have Don Imus who's been in and out of rehab for the last five years what could possibly go wrong Um, but it 
all came together yeah. and the darn thing worked and Don really stayed clean the rest of his life and uh, he was a brilliant guy. He could be challenging, but he was a brilliant guy. More challenging that or Mike in the Mad Dog and how did you hold back from being too micromanaging. And that's one of the things I loved about Ron. I mean, because yeah. they just let, you know, from D. Wood, they just say, yeah. all right, go do your thing. This yeah. is why we hired you. That has always been the culture here. I learned a long time ago. In the very beginning, uh, one of our original investors says, you know, you you delegate too much. And I said, well, I don't delegate anything. I picked every record. I picked all the equipment. I wrote the TV commercial. I wrote the, I do the sales presentations. In the very beginning, I didn't delegate. I think you cannot grow an enterprise unless you do. Uh, you really have to have good people. There's an old saying the president of our university had I always loved. He said, the first motion of any board should be to fire the CEO. And if it fails, let that person do their job. And I've always felt that way with my managers. Let them do their job. Don't micromanage them. And if they're not the right person, get another manager. But I can't. I mean, you can imagine the number of times people call me and say, I want you to go talk to, to JMB or I want yeah. you to talk to Dockage. Or I want you. And I've said, look, that's not my job. My job is to go through my managers and let them manage. And if they can't manage, I got to get different managers. But you just cannot. The, the hardest part about new managers is saying, I can do my old job better than the person who replaced me. Uh, and that and that's the fraught with disaster. You got time to stay. I said 50. Can you stay until the top of the hour? I, I, could, I'm, I think based on my schedule, I'm free. You until, know, I'm free till June. I'm you, be, you know yeah. radio really well. And I need to take a break here. But I want to get in on... Uh, you as a baseball owner and being a part of a birth of an absolute superstar. Yeah. Cool. Coming Absolutely. up here. Jeff Smalling in studio, other side. Never ride a roller coaster upside down. The ups and downs and reinvention of an entrepreneur. Jeff, more with him in studio coming up next. Hey, welcome back tomorrow again on the road. A legendary slippery noodle, our city bourbon locks, Luna Azul tequila shots. Get there. I'd love to see you coming up tomorrow before the holidays. Jeff Smolian in studio. Never ride a roller coaster upside down, the ups and downs, and reinvention of an entrepreneur. Uh, of course, Jeff, the head of Emmis, back in studio with us now. Once upon a time, you bought a major league baseball team, right. the Seattle Mariners, right. back in 1989, yep. I believe right. correctly. And you, you were a part of... Of a birth of a superstar while yes. in the Pacific Northwest. Talk yeah. a little bit and about that. We actually that. had several superstars. Yeah, you did uh, at the time. Yeah. Johnson, Edgar Martinez. Ed- Edgar Martinez. One of my favorite mm-hmm. stories about Edgar Martinez is they said you can't put him in the lineup because he's not a five-tool guy. He can't hit. Or he can't. He can't run. He can't field. But he was the greatest hitting machine of all time. No doubt. And he played his way in the lineup and then it never came out. But Junior was my favorite part about baseball. Um, he was really, I think, the most gifted baseball player ever seen. Um, and every night was just spectacular. That was the one thing I missed about baseball was not being around Junior. And then we put Junior and his dad together, and they were the first and only father and son ever to play together. Um, I've kept very few mementos of my time in baseball. But the lineup card that they signed for me the first night that a father and son ever played is something that's on my I ball. remember watching that. That was such an incredible big deal yep. back then, too. Fun. And I mean, there wasn't a great deal to write home about about Seattle with baseball prior no, there, to that. No, there just I, wasn't. I, I learned that. I mean, quickly. other than the highlight of Lynn Randall trying to blow that bunt foul, <laughs> you know, in this week in baseball, that was really all the highlights they had. Yeah, um, yeah. We, it, I mean, it was it was it was a fascinating franchise. Um, it was just downtrodden, um, and I joked, you know, we we couldn't afford to do it. Um, 
uh, you know, I said, you need to be a billionaire to own the Mariners or teams like that. It, to own the Dodgers and the Yankees, if you have a paper route, you're in pretty good shape. Um, but the economics were just very tough. Uh, um, how long did you own the Mariners? Three years. Three, three years? Three years. And, and you were in Seattle, 89 through 91, in a very, yep. Yep. 92, a very important time, too, because you not only were at the helm of the Mariners, but there was a music revolution absolutely. going on where you were. And I actually lived off of First Street, where a lot of that started. Yeah. 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 I mean, you got to see that firsthand, First I'm assuming, hand. right, with the, yeah. you know, the evolution of Nirvana and Pearl yeah. Jam and Soundgarden and, I, and, and I, Alice in Chains and that sound. And I love the town. I thought it was a great town. The reason we did it is we were supposed to turn around guys and the Mariners had never had a winning season they always had the worst attendance of the league um, and we were sort of the marketing guys and I was very proud of the stuff we did stuff we did in a ballpark that nobody had ever done then we did crazy movie clips we played you know Belushi you know when we were down five runs in the ninth inning was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor right you guys started that out that's we, awesome we had the Mr. Ed clip of Mr. Ed the horse running around the bases they did a thing to me one night they had a singles night um, and they had the top ten pickup lines uh, overheard at the ballpark and I was single for many years and uh, the line the number one pickup line was hi I'm Jeff I own this team uh, so they did we just did all sorts of crazy stuff well and I brought this up to you one of our elevator conversations yeah. here is I saw an old clip on YouTube yeah. and there was a I guess a locally legendary alternative music or grunge music show yeah. that aired weekly in uh, Seattle yeah. where they brought on Soundgarden to yeah. talk about you yeah, I, <laughs> they I, were very kind I got I, I, well I would say everybody I, I get back to this is going from genius to idiot yeah. my, my last six months in Seattle I was I was the boy wonder you know I would I would sign autographs I, I have a favorite saying that you, you know one of my dear friends came out and he watched me sign autographs for 30 minutes after a ball game one night and he said um, any society that wants your autograph is a society that can't endure and I would walk around the ballpark once in a while and in the, in the first two and a half the years I was a hero and one night I walked around the ballpark and I'm in right field the people are standing cheering and after the game Jay Buhner came up to me and said I'm running into I'm running into walls and I'm killing myself and they boo me you make one appearance in right field and they love you but I but I, then I became a pariah um, and um, it, it was it was an interesting experience I think everybody should be a pariah once in your life uh, but it's not a lot of fun going through it do you laugh if you're watching an old Seinfeld and you hear uh, Frank Costanza rip on that Jay Buhner trade how could you trade Jay Buhner Ken Phelps Ken Phelps Ken Phelps, yeah, and yeah, and, and Jay was a great guy. Um, we, we were once the Yankees demanded short haircuts. Yeah, so I sent a note down the clubhouse and said to Randy Johnson, "You have to cut your hair." And I sent the same note to Buner. Now Buner was balding. Yeah, and, and so it was. You know, Buner did not think that no was doubt. funny. But no. we we had a lot of fun. We had great great people. And I and and Junior was. I I think if Junior hadn't been injured, he would have been the greatest baseball player who ever lived. Did you take a, a shot at maybe? trying to get back into the baseball ownership game in the yeah. 2000s? and if you read the book, uh, we almost bought uh, two or three other teams. We had a chance to buy the Dodgers. In retrospect, you uh, you learn all my mistakes. When I got out of baseball, I'll tell you one story if we got time. Yeah. David Stern was a dear friend. 
that ran the NBA. And David called me one day in our last few months in Seattle, and he said, I have a, I have a bet with somebody. He said, I have a bet that if somebody offered you the Mariners today for free, and the two conditions were you had to stay in Seattle for 10 years, and the economics of baseball couldn't change in 10 years, would you do it? And I instantly said, of course not. I said, the free team you've just given me would cost me $500 million in losses in 10 years, and that doesn't get into the psychic cost of hitting your head against the wall every day. And he said, thanks, you just won me 20 bucks." But when I got out of baseball, he was very kind, and he offered me a chance to take over the Houston Rockets. He said, oh, really? put in whatever money you want. And I said, David, my first love is Emmis. Uh, and Emmis had gone through a recession, and Emmis had problems. And I said, i got to go fix Emmis. And he reminded me of how much the Rockets were worth as time went on. <laughs> so, Jeff Mullion in studio, we're talking about his book. You um, recently, as I was a part of this too, uh, you bid farewell. Uh, with the sales of of Ennis Communications, the radio division of Ennis right. Communications, right. Um, I know how it's been for us in this transition. How has it been for somebody that has been so deeply woven in the fabric of radio his entire it, life? It's hard. Um, it, it was the right decision. We knew that. We knew we weren't big enough to to do some of the things, and we watched watched the biggest guys in the industry have their own problems. And we said, what we really loved was was buying things that grow, and we just couldn't find a way to make it grow so we felt it was time to move on yeah and uh, i mean just you're, you're probably you're i'm assuming you're routine oriented i'm very routine yeah. oriented yes. here and when that routine like that's broken that yeah. probably will take more than just a couple of months to get used to yeah and this is a business i you know i don't think anybody loved this business more than me and the people around me um but we're now into some new challenges and we're having fun so you, i think yeah you were on the usc board of directors and yes. i had just mentioned where i, I read via tmz that that genie bus who is also the yes. owner of the lakers yes. on that board of directors is yeah. marrying jay moore i i i'm i'm yeah i know genie and she's a lovely lovely woman lovely woman wow marrying yeah. jay moore yeah well she's well preserved at 61 too yeah, let me tell a, you that right there pretty woman i will say yeah jay moore i think is my age he doesn't look equally as well preserved no, at my age genie is a very pretty and a very nice woman <laughs> yeah. very nice Incredible. How can people get your book? Uh, they can get it anywhere. They can go to Amazon and buy it. They can go to bookstores and get it. Uh, you know, they can download it on Apple. They can download it. They can, If you really want to torture yourself, you can buy the audiobook and listen to me for 300 pages. I, you can listen to me read for 300 pages. That's worthy, too, because you kicked Kyle and I out of that fifth floor studio for yeah. a long period of time to oh, make yeah. that happen. Yeah, well, it's, that's right. I did it on the fifth floor, <laughs> and, I had, and, and they said, you're going to lose your mind, but it was fun That's yeah fun. well and, and no i i spared you the the sound garden comment and yeah. the the chris cornell comment about you but yeah. uh it is a fascinating life it really yeah. is it, it's um, been a lot of fun i've enjoyed every minute of i've been surrounded by fabulous people i got a great family and uh i'm very fortunate thank you so much for what you've done yeah. for me for us and this genre because without you this doesn't happen well, I appreciate that, John. I but really uh, you have been awesome. Uh, you you rescued me, you know, twelve years ago from another place too, and I can't I can't thank you enough for well, what you've done for me. It's my pleasure, and uh, congratulations on a great career. You've done a great job. Thank you very much, Jeff Smalley. And again, the book is "Never Ride a Roller Coaster Upside Down: The Ups and Downs and Reinvention of an Entrepreneur." Amazon, where you buy books, that's where you can find that. It is a fantastic, multi-dimensional read that I promise you you will love, Jeff. Thank Thank you. Thanks. 
Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Andy Moore, Automotive Group Potline. He is the voice of the Pacers, Bally Sports Indiana, later on tonight in Boston. With the matchup, the Pacers and the Celtics, Kristen Airy joins us. I'm assuming... That you look at the recent games for the Celtics, and this is a very talented team, an incredibly prideful team, that's probably a little bit salty right now, correct? Yeah, I would think so. Uh, They lost back-to-back games uh, here to Orlando. They've lost three straight at home. Uh, They've lost four or five overall, and offensively, uh, they're the best team in the NBA scoring-wise, 118 points per game. But over this five-game stretch, John, they're about 104, which is uh, down near the bottom. So, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, the Pacers just played a Knicks team that is as hot as anybody in the NBA. They won again last night, uh, what, they've won eight or nine straight. Um, And and tonight you've got a team that's been atop the East for much of the year. They're now – they got passed uh, with their recent loss. They're a half game behind Milwaukee, but – yeah, you would think they would be a little salty, uh, especially the way they uh, got swept by Orlando. Yeah, I would say the same thing, too. Uh, it is a talented team, though, across the board. And I mentioned this a little bit earlier. They, they just provide some matchups that are not just worrisome for any team out there, but, you know, talking about the Pacers, some tough matchups coming up later on tonight. Oh, there's no question about that. I, you know, as I look at my chart, you know, the, the Pacers are young and, and they've done a lot of good things this year, but you're playing a lot of rookies and second year and third year guys. You look at Jason Tatum in his sixth year, Jalen Brown in his seventh year, Derek White, sixth year, uh, Malcolm Brogdon's uh, playing really well for them off the bench in his seventh year, Smart in his ninth year, uh, Al Horford in his 16th year. I mean, th- this is a team built to win a championship right now. They, they nearly did it last year. Uh, getting to the NBA Finals against Golden State. So it's a veteran team. You know, you're going to hit some bumps in the road during an 82-game schedule. There's no question about that. I mean, it's 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 going to happen, and it's happened right now for the Celtics because, you know, before that, John, they had won 17 of 19, including a nine-game win streak. So, uh, you know, hopefully they're still a little bit down, and, and that helps the Pacers tonight. But you know, really, if you if, what's frustrating is if you look at the last few games, the Pacers played very well in Cleveland for the better part of three quarters, and I thought did a nice job against New York. And in both those instances, they had late leads and just were not able to hold on to them. So, uh, you know, if they can come out and play the way they've played for the better part of the last few games, you'll you'll feel good if they can get that position down down the stretch. Hey, Chris, I said this yesterday. I thought that you could make an argument that against a really good team, Friday night in Cleveland, up until the end of the fourth quarter, was as good as an effort and a level of play as we've seen out of this Pacer team. But I'm I'm curious, uh, the three-pronged reason that can lead you to a late-game collapse or not closing would be obviously turnovers, um, you know, defending, um, the other team, you know, how much they scored down the stretch, and then yourself finding some offense. And that here recently, late in the fourth, has been a struggle for this basketball team. Yeah, last two games they've scored just 39 total points. That's 19.5 points per game. And they're the number one fourth quarter team in the league at nearly 30 points per game. And, and part of that, you know, they've played better better teams here in the last couple of games. I mean, Cleveland's third in the East, and New York's on the rise of the East. So, um, 
Yeah, those things can happen. And I I think, you know, one of the things in Cleveland, I I thought through the better part of three quarters, did a really good job of moving the ball. Um, You know, how much of it was Cleveland's defense got amped up? How much of it was, you know, the Pacers settled for some things that ordinarily they wouldn't do that? Probably a combination of both. Uh, but as as Rick Carlisle has said with this team, what they've experienced probably in the last couple of weeks against some high-caliber opponents has been more like playoff basketball. And that's when he looks at his roster, very few of these guys have had any type of playoff experience. Probably the only one, you know, from a, a standpoint is Miles Turner. I mean, Halliburton Heald have not played in the playoffs. Jalen Smith is young. Uh, Isaiah Jackson, all these guys are young. So what they've had to experience in late-game situations now against Miami, against Cleveland, against New York, uh, I thought they handled it well against Golden State. And, and John, really, there was a stretch there uh, at home against pretty good teams in New Orleans and Miami and Toronto that they did a good job of, of holding on to leads in the fourth. But, um, you know, they, they've just got to look at, at how they do things, what the rotations are, and and try to do a better job than what we've seen in the last couple. Yeah, he's uh, Chris Denary, the voice of the Pacers, Valley Sports, Indiana, coming at you later on tonight at 7 o'clock, the Pacers on the road in Boston. Yeah, that, that has been an issue. And you look back at that Knicks game, they had some opportunities. I mean, Buddy Heald had a, a tough turnover there in that second-to-last possession. Miles in the fourth missed four free throws, which is uh, incredibly uncommon for him as he's a good free-throw shooter. And they, you know, they just struggled with makes. They struggle with makes, and it just seemed like when they needed to stop late, they were just unable to do it. And, you know, you had Randall at the free throw line every single minute, too. Yeah, I mean, you did not expect Julius Randall to make seven straight free throws in the fourth quarter. But I thought, you know, two minutes to play, they got the, the, the play with uh, Neesmith at the basket for a wide-open dunk. You're up six with uh, under two to play. The next possession, there was a miscommunication on should we switch, should we stay, and they left Jalen Brunson right in front of our broadcast position. He hits the three. Okay, now it's a three-point game. Problem is you then came down the floor immediately and turned it over, and Brunson laid it in. So in a matter of seconds, your lead went from six to one, and that's a huge difference. And I thought that put a lot of pressure on the Pacers on those possessions. Uh, They missed shots. They had the turnovers. As you said, Miles' free throws uh, did not help. It was just a thing that really compounded it. But I really look at that play where Brunson hits the three uh, that that changed the game. I think it was Nemhard and Neesmith got confused because, yeah. you know, a lot of times in late-game situations they're switching. Sometimes they're not switching. I'm not sure what they were supposed to do there. The problem was they left Brunson wide open. Well, I mean, you, that's the first you got the cover of the guy with the ball. That's the good shooter. Yeah. That's that's where I mean, when all else fails, that's exactly the what you do. And I, I I remember you mentioning that to Quinn as well, and that was a huge turning point. There's no doubt about it. And you brought up the fact that we know this, and Rick made a point of saying this before they went out west for seven games, is that it's going to get much tougher. You know, teams are going to see this record and go, hey, you know, this is not you know the type of game that we thought when we first saw this schedule when it came out it was going to be against the Pacers but I also will say this that advanced scout catches up incredibly quick with you in the NBA doesn't it oh there's no question and and from a personnel standpoint 
I mean, I, I had a nice conversation with Benedict Mather and after the game the other night with a, a lot of season ticket holders, and I asked him, you know, what adjustments have you had to make now as the season's progressed? Because now people know who you are. You're on the scouting report. You're the Eastern Conference Rookie of the Month for October and November, and that's true, and that's where you have to work with the coaches. You've got to uh, diversify your game. You've got to do some things a little bit different because all of a sudden they're game planning for you. And to your point, John, I think that's that's factual. Is I, I'm sure many of these teams, you know, they read the press clippings. They read. They go on the internet and they look at a Pacers team that was expected to win, you know, twenty twenty to twenty five to you know twenty eight games on the year. And all of a sudden, at one point, they're well over 500 and they're fourth of the East. And so all of a sudden, you get their attention. And that's something that the, this group has to deal with as well. And to me, in watching it, too, and Kristen Airy joins us, it seems like that they have, outside of Buddy Heald, and this does include Halliburton, they have defensively, it seems like that they're marked as a group that, all right, we have to make them prove it. If they knock down a shot or two, then you go out and you, you know, you really, you know, defend against it. But it, it's almost like it's kind of a, a prove it and then we'll do it type of mentality that a lot of these guys have against the Pacers offensively uh, outside of Buddy Heald, I think, in the shot making category. You agree? Yeah, and I think the one thing, I mean, if you look at the the last six games, offensively, the Pacers have been good enough in in totality. I think for the last six, they're shooting better than 50% from the field. One of the games is the outlier, the Miami game, where they had their worst night of the year. I think they were at 35%. But for the most most part of late, uh, offensively, has not been a problem. Now, you can look at those fourth quarters against Cleveland and New York when things get shut down a little bit. So, But you're right. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, Buddy, I think Buddy's been terrific this year. I mean, uh, he's hit some big shots. Uh, he hit some big ones the other night uh, when that lead was dwindling a little bit and they were able to get it back to six in the final two minutes. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's still a learning process. Uh, I think we all knew that. Uh, we knew there would be highs and lows. Uh, you get a little ge- uh, greedy, you know, as this team jumped out to, uh, you know, a nice record. Um, they were ahead of schedule. And sometimes that'll catch up to you just because the schedule gets a little tougher. And, you know, if you look at, at this schedule now, they just, you know, came off Cleveland and New York, who are two top teams in the East. You've got Boston tonight, who's number two. You have to go to Miami on on friday then you have to go the day after christmas to do Orleans, and they're right near the top of the west come back with atlanta cleveland and the clippers so yeah the the schedule uh there there are a lot of good teams on uh in this league and on this schedule and you've got to deal with it on a game-by-game basis so chris and Mary's on the andy moore automotive group hotline too and you know you go back to the miami game and you know, the Pacers just kind of fell into that web of exactly how Miami wants you to play when you're playing them. I mean, that's where they felt comfortable, and you could tell. And the Pacers were incredibly uncomfortable offensively playing at that low output level. Yeah, Jimmy Butler, I mean, there's a reason why so many teams, you know, have wanted him. Just to, he, he makes plays especially in games that aren't very, very pretty. And that one clearly wasn't pretty. It was a 87-82 slugfest. It reminded me of a game in the early 2000s. I thought the Pistons might have been playing, you know, the way uh, the way they played as 
in those low-scoring games. But, yeah, I mean, I thought back to that game, John, it was two guys that have played at a high level in the playoffs that helped them win that game, and that was Lowry and Butler. You know, they've been there, they've done that, and the Pacers are still learning as a group how to do that. Um, Again, if you go back a few weeks, I thought they had some really good success in about a four- or five-game stretch where they won those close games. Now they're in a stretch where – they're losing those close games. So uh, we'll see how they learn from that and how they push forward going forward. Did you hear the Wally Zerbiak post-game comments? Yeah, I, I don't understand uh, he, you know, what, what you're trying to say, why you're trying to say that. I mean, I've always felt this, John, is that I have great respect for everybody across the league and all these teams. And do I want some teams to lose? Sure. But, um, you know, it's all about the brand. And I just thought he really stepped over the line uh, in, in what he said. I, I, you know, I was disappointed that, you know, he would say something like that because, you know, Tyrese has been uh, a, a terrific player in his three years in the NBA. I think he represents the league very well. And my opinion is, you know, for somebody to say that about him, I, I, I you know, I just uh, hard pressed to know why. You know, it's funny. I played back something a little bit earlier where Halliburton was asked that and then gave his answer as to what he thought because, you know, obviously he had not promoted himself as an all-star or anything like that. And I, I had said yesterday, after I first heard it, I said it just sounded like, Zerbi has sounded like a dude in this era of media where you, you feel compelled that you have to be so stinking over-the-top outspoken and you're sure as hell not comfortable with it, and that's the outcome. You completely look like a jackass, and that's exactly yeah. what it was. And and then yeah. at the end of what Halliburton said, I don't know if it was yesterday. I'm assuming it was yesterday. Um, in his answer, he said, "You know, that's just kind of where where media is." And I would argue that's where a lot of media is, and that's where some want to go, but that's not where it all is, certainly. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I don't. No, not everybody's like that. I just. I don't think you just have to have a take to have a take, and you throw something out there, and you you. You want recognition, you know, for something to stick on the wall. That that's just something that, you know, from my standpoint, I don't even pay attention to stuff like that. It it really doesn't impact what I'm trying to do as a play-by-play broadcaster. So, but I, I was disappointed. I mean, uh, just you know, for him to say something like that, and 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 he and he did it a couple times, right? He said something, and then he came back to it. Um, yeah, disappointing. All right, you guys at the air coming up at 7 o'clock tonight, correct, from Boston? You're going to get a conversation, quick conversation in with Brad? Yeah, 7 o'clock. You know, hopefully I'll see Brad uh, just to to wish him best of luck, wish him a happy holiday. And uh, Eddie Gill is here, so uh, Eddie will be on the radio with Mark tonight, and he'll uh, have pregame and postgame with J.J. tonight on Valley Sports. And then uh, we fly to Miami tomorrow. And hopefully we'll get in after the game on Friday. It's an 8 o'clock game in Miami, and then we'll be flying back. Uh, we, we fly Christmas night to go to New Orleans. But, yeah, we'll just have to wait and see what this weather is like. But uh, we uh, everybody is adamant about getting home for Christmas. So, you know, hopefully the Pacers can get a couple of wins, uh, go home for a day or so, enjoy enjoy ourselves, and then back out on the road uh, in New Orleans on Monday. You might know this, and maybe you don't, but I was watching some of that uh, G League showcase the other day. I don't know how much of that you watch, but in watching Maine, the Maine Celtics, 
Alex Barlow was coaching him up, and I was kind of curious at the time how quickly he might be moving up the ranks in the NBA with that gig with Maine. Well, it's interesting. You look at sort of that coaching tree tied to Butler with with Brad Stevens. Cameron Woods, uh, who played at Butler with OKC, with the OKC Blue. Of course, uh, we have Ron Norad as an assistant coach with the Pacers. So it's really interesting to see these guys uh, as they make the leap into the NBA and, and just what is on the horizon. So, you know, I, I think, I think the world of Ronald Norris, I think he's done a, a heck of a job for Rick Carlisle and that staff. And I think all of us know that at some point uh, as we move along, Ron's going to be a head coach in this league. And uh, I, I know we're all grateful to have him on the Pacer staff right I, now. I tell you what though, on the other side too, tonight with Boston, they have their, their kind of own collegiate coaching tree example. So that's pretty cool, too. Oh, yeah. There's no question about that. I mean, with what they went through when Amey Udoka, uh, you know, they, they basically, you know, asked him to step aside. Um, yeah, it, it's pretty cool to see. It's, it's you know, I, I'm happy for, from a uh, just an NBA standpoint, Boston, who was so good last year, and, you know, Gallinari gets hurt, tears his ACL. I mean, they've they really faced some things in the preseason, and have done a nice job to have one of the best records in the NBA. So it'll be a real challenge for the Pacers tonight, but I know they're ready for it. Uh, they feel like, you know, they've they've let a few games slip away here, especially at home. Uh, so this will be a big one tonight and, and see how the Pacers can respond. All right, buddy, we'll be watching you coming up at 7P. That is the pregame show, Bally Sports Indiana, the voice of the Pacers, Chris Denary with the Pacers and the Celtics coming at you later on this evening. Safe travels, however you guys uh, decide to handle that with the uh, weather uh, in and around the Midwest and the East Coast. And we'll talk again very soon. Be careful. Have a great broadcast. Hey, I will. And uh, if I don't uh, talk to the the great fans that are listening, uh, Merry Christmas, uh, have a happy holidays, and hope to see people at Gamebridge Fieldhouse uh, next week. It's going to be fun, John. Home on the 27th, the 29th, and the 31st. Oh, yeah. Heading into the new year. So it's going to be a lot of fun. That means when you're coming out, you can turn me on on the JMV Takeover. Wherever you're that's going, right. I mean, that's a big night right there, the 31st, buddy. Big hey, time. Hey, and I just got to tell you, if you are at the 31st game, which is an afternoon game, uh, one Archer Denary, one year old, nice. will be making his debut in the Baby Crawl contest <laughs> at Gamebridge Fieldhouse. So uh, I know, I know, my grandson is already out there practicing. I told, I told my son and daughter-in-law, okay, he can't walk yet. We, we need to let him crawl. So we'll 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 see how Archer Denary does here in a week. That's awesome uh, at Gamebridge Fieldhouse. Yeah, looking forward to it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Fantastic! Happy holidays, Merry Christmas to you and the fam, and and everybody on the broadcast. We'll do it again soon. All right, thanks, John. It's uh, Chris Denary on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline.